Welcome to the show. You're listening to Perfect Health on Elastic FM with me, Elaine Godley. And I'm delighted to welcome my guest today, Martin Graham Gamble. So uh, welcome, Martin, to the show. Hello. Thank so, you for having me. I, I know you as Martin Graham, but you're Martin Gamble. So explain yourself, please. Yes, well, my full name is actually Martin Graham Gamble, but um, I, I, I have a show like yourselves on um, uh, Elastic FM, and uh, that goes under the name Martin Graham. So uh, it's just really to differentiate between the two so the social media. I know uh, I, I, can, I can be sort of uh, split into two personalities, if you like, for that. So uh, I get the, uh, the sort of personal stuff to myself, and then I get the, uh, the work stuff, if you like, through the uh, Elastic FM. I right. do, which is Martin Graham, but I'm, I'm one and the same, yeah. yeah. One of the same, cool. Yeah. And and you speak with a delightful accent, Martin, where are you from? Yeah, well, I'm born and bred in Sheffield, really, so uh, what, what we call D-Dars, because there's no TH sound in Sheffield, it's always NAD-ND, what D-Dar-Dar-D-Dar, so, so <laughs> we're called D-Dars, but I'm actually a dual citizen as well, so I've got a, I've also got an Irish passport as well as a, a UK one, so... Uh, I have fond uh, affinities to uh, the Emerald Isle. Right. Well, what's the connection to Ireland? Uh, well, it, it, it's through through um, through heritage, um, through, through grandparents. Um, and, um, but uh, I, I, in in a previous uh, job, I, I used to work a lot out of Ireland, so I love the place. It's great. You know, Belfast, Dublin, Cork, all over the place. Kerry. So um, yeah, I just I just like the place, and uh, I've got a strong affinity, strong draw to the. Uh, to my ancestral home. Right, lovely. I'm rather partial to Guinness. I went to the um, I went to Dublin last year and visited the Guinness factory, and I have to say it's it's just pure genius over there. It really is. It is a different drink over there. I must admit. Yeah, yeah. Um, th there's also the Jameson's uh, uh, distillery there as well, which is quite interesting. If uh, like myself, you got invited to, onto a tasting session. So, oh, <laughs> I, that I sounds dangerous. Yeah, well, immediately threw the car keys to my wife and said, that's it, I'm uh, joining in on this one. And and I did. And I quite enjoyed that afternoon. That was quite fun. Fabulous. So we're not here to talk about alcohol and uh, uh, testing uh, whiskies and, uh, and Guinness, <laughs> however nice that is. So, Martin, you, you've had quite an interesting background in your in your sporting career. So you've you've uh, you've actually mentioned in ireland you've actually um cycled for ireland haven't you tell us tell us a bit about that yeah it's, um i, I think it's probably made my last appearance well my last appearance was about 2005 so it's a dim and distant memory at the moment but um i, I i'm a cyclist and um, um I, the, the discipline i rode in is something called cycle speedway which is uh, sort of very short track racing but uh, contact sport as well so it can get a bit scary um, but um, I, I, under British Cycling, I've also um, qualified as a coach. So the coaching badges have enabled me to um, act as tour director and um, do, write development plans, coaching sessions and things like that uh, through all, all disciplines. So I don't just do um, Speedway now. I do, um, I'm actually coaching a regular slot uh, in Sheffield at Forge Rally uh, for road um, racing. So um uh, but I, but I also you know I like uh, I love track I love time trialing anything to do with a bike really if I can get back on a bike because uh, unfortunately uh, injuries over the years have uh, are now coming back to bite me so it's very difficult now to um, 
you know, to, to see myself getting back on a bike in uh, any uh, imminent time. So um, road racing, you mentioned, there's an awful lot of road racing going on these days. So quite often you'll, you'll find whole villages are closed and um, diversion signs and all sorts going off, uh, particularly in the East Midlands where I've just moved from. Um, so the road yes. racing, what, what's, what's the big deal? What, what's the difference between speedway and road racing? Well, first of all, apologies if you if you're a motorist. I'm a, I'm also a motorist as well as a cyclist, so uh, I get equally frustrated when roads are closed and you want to get from A to B. You can see where B is, but you have to go via C, D, E, F, and G to get there because there's a, a blasted cycling race on. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, road racing tends to be the professional um, uh, cycling sport. So th these are the guys that uh, at the top level um, they can make uh, handsome living. Um, um, uh, you know at the top level at the elite level um but the beauty of cycling is is that of course it appeals you, you know one you, you only need one person to be to, to enjoy cycling it's, it's not like football you can't really go and play a game of football uh, on your own uh, or rugby or hockey or anything like that or netball um but uh, cycling if there's if there's one of you or a hundred of you or a thousand of you you can you can participate in various things and they're not necessarily all sporting not not necessarily all competitive you, you you get the um you get the sportives and you get the fun run the, well the fun rides if you like the uh, the breeze ride which is um uh aimed at um at, at getting more uh, women into cycling as well um so um it's uh it, it, it's it, it's open season whatever you want to do if you want to do it on a bike there's something to do somewhere um and some facilitate and there'll be a discipline that if you don't like one discipline if you don't like time trialing, you don't like road, you can go to track racing or you can go to BMX or mountain biking. So there's, there's something for everybody there as far as cycling is concerned. And it's, a, it's a good and fit and healthy pastime as well. It, it gets the old lungs going, keeps the muscles toned. It's not as load bearing as such. It's not like weightlifting or anything like that. Uh, yes. Cycling yeah. is often compared to swimming as a, uh, a good um, therapeutic um, uh, pastime as well. Yeah, I, I have a confession to make, Martin. I can't ride a bike. Um, <laughs> I, did, ah. <laughs> I didn't have a bike as a child, and I've tried many times since I've um, grown up. Well, that's, that's debatable. Some my family say that I'm still still working on growing up, but um, I didn't I didn't have a bike. And um, a few times I've actually been out and bought a bike with a view to trying again, and. Um, doing charity things but I just can't get the hang of it my balance is just atrocious and I'm scared to go fast on it so I'm a bit, a bit of a wimp and uh, I've, many times I've bought bikes and I've given them away to charities so uh, I'm well, not a very good uh, advocate I'm afraid. Yeah, no, well, well, well balance is something we probably touch on a bit later on in this uh, in this program um, about how to improve balance and, and various other things but um, but 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 again it's 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 worth the effort it, it, as people say, it's like riding a bike. It's it's the sort of thing you you you, you never forget what what you've, once you've learned, once you've done it, and you, and there's so much pleasure in it, and it serves a valuable purpose as well. Because and, and I think we're in times at the moment where people are being encouraged to work from home, and that does two things. One is it frees up the roadways, if you like. I was in rush hour traffic in Sheffield uh, and uh, yesterday, last night, uh, and it, and it was like a bank holiday. Sunday morning, it was it was dead as a dodo, um, uh, and and I think the paradigm is going to change as well. The paradigm for transport, so um, we'll be looking at situations where 
be it electric cars or, or be it short journeys made on uh, on bicycles and things like that would be uh, would be more appropriate as, as we move along. Um, and of course, if there's less traffic on the roads, the motorists are happy because they're not stuck in traffic jams. The cyclists are happy because there's fewer cars on the road to uh, run into, if you see what I mean. Or, or yes. it, it, a lot of people are put off by uh, traffic on the roads. And I must admit, it, it frightens me at times. But um, but on the other hand, um, it, it, it's something, there is a, the roads are big enough for everybody. So um, this situation we're in at the moment is locked down and, and, and people um, uh, uh, staying home to work rather than travelling to and from offices. The whole paradigm of the rush hour and, and, and traffic and, and, and traffic jams and all, all, all the other good stuff that goes with that um, may well change uh, as we come out the other side in, in, a, in a few weeks or months' time. Mm. I think you're absolutely right there. I think we're be, there is a huge paradigm shift at the moment. Um, before I left Nottingham, I was seeing an awful lot of uh, cyclists coming out and about as the weather was improving on the, the cycle pathways. And um, the UK have done a very good job in, in joining up the cycle pathways, particularly with the universities, so that um, students can go from one uh, campus to another on their bicycles, which, which makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I think it's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is a, some, some, I, I mean, I, I said, I mentioned I'm coming from Sheffield. I lived in Sheffield for the first 30 odd years of my life. Um, and Sheffield is renowned. It's, it's like Rome, apparently. It's built on, uh, what is it, five rivers and seven hills. Um, uh, it, apart from that, we haven't got a Coliseum or a Forum or anything <laughs> like that. Huh? Um, but, um, uh, but the hills in Sheffield make it sometimes quite difficult um, to uh, to ride a bike, uh, although competitively there's been quite a good um, uh, representation of uh, Sheffield and South Yorkshire riders uh, riding at elite level um, until quite recently. Um, so the practicalities uh, of riding a bike, say from the city centre to the outskirts of Norton or somewhere like that, it, it, it's great going in because it's all downhill, but down the only works one way so you've then got to uh, use the energy coming home uh, pedaling up the uh, up meadowhead and uh, chesterfield road which are quite steep but, but some people like the challenge of doing that and 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 when people gain more confidence riding on the road um it, it is um it, it is a, a very helpful way and it saves a lot of money in uh, petrol and uh, bus fares and various other things so and you can get tax breaks as well if you buy a bike to work so there's lots of things um, in favour of uh, bikes. I think we, we can still do a lot more to encourage more cycling on the roads. Um, but um, hopefully this uh, situation at the moment will help matters a little bit as well. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't know you could get a tax break from uh, uh, bikes. It makes sense if you can get tax breaks with your cars. Why not with bikes? That makes sense, isn't it? Yeah, I think if you... I, I'm assuming it's still, if you're using the bike to commute to and from work or on business, then you can get a tax break on that, yeah. yeah. Excellent. What, what, are the, what are the main health benefits for, for bike riding, would you say? Well, just a general overall fitness. Um, it, it, the, the, you are exercising most of your muscles. Um, having said that, things like your, um, any, anything around the waist, you, you always... The proper cyclist, you see a proper cyclist, always have a slight paunch. Because <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> uh, you don't use stomach muscles. But um, again, depending on what discipline you, you go in, you can, have, uh, you can build up muscle mass quite easily. Um, I mean, typically sprinters, sprint cyclists, I'd have a, uh, um, uh, 
a fat body weight ratio of around about probably 10% or, or even less than that. Um, and that's, that, that's probably a, a 25, 30-year-old male uh, who would normally be about 25% uh, fat body weight at that level. Um, so you do end up being um, sort of muscle-bound in some, some ways, especially if you're a sprinter. Uh, but you see, I mean, if you, I don't know if you noticed Bradley Wiggins. Uh, so Bradley Wiggins, Wiggins um, uh, is one of the, well, is he, is either him or Chris Hoy have got the most medals um, in Olympics. And one of them is built like a, a drain pipe and the other one's built like a, you know, a brick, uh, a brick toilet. <laughs> um, <laughs> so so it, it, it doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't, it, it tones your muscles um, for a start, but your fitness and your, your, your oxygen intake and things like that can go up as well. And, and I mentioned hills as well in Sheffield. Um, they're quite useful for doing um, quick sprints and, um, you know, get out of the saddle and attacking the hills, going up the hills um, and, and getting, getting the heart rate up. Um, getting the oxygen working and, um, and, and trying to stay aerobic. Uh, obviously, if you're sprinting, um, you, you, you're anaerobic, which means you're working out of oxygen. So, you, you, you know, different things happen to your body when you're working in oxygen and out of oxygen. So, there's, again, if, if you just want to be fit enough just to go for a, a country ride, say Sherwood Pines or Sherwood Forest or uh, anywhere like that, um, Robber Valley, um, the... the you, you, you can you can be fit enough to do that quite comfortable and enjoy cycling so really it's it's a sport for everybody really like i said I compare it to other sports like rugby league netball and football and everything else that goes with it there's a there's a um it, there's an aspect to it where you require a minimum level of fitness where cycling you don't you can get on a bike tomorrow and and uh, and ride you know just ride around the ride around the block and then build up your fitness as you go along I've got a vision of me over the um, next few years of cracking this because I do I do want to because you know I see that the health benefits and the fresh air and all the rest of it and now I'm living in Portugal it would be lovely to sort of toodle along the promenade with a, with a bike but um, I've got visions of me where with one of these three wheelers with a basket on the front you know driving this Daisy type of uh, uh, bike but uh, yeah, it's, don't a bike. it's got wheels don't knock it that's just as good that's fine um you see a lot of people on uh, on three wheels um th th there are races for trikes um so uh, it, it is it is recognized um you, you can get a fair old uh, speed up on a trike gets you from here to b and, and practically speaking as well if you're carrying it carrying shopping uh, a trike is probably as as good a uh, vehicle as, as anything really because yeah. you can put a basket on the back and uh, you're not going to be worried about shopping falling out or uh, uh, toppling over or, or, or anything like that you, you, you've, uh, you, you can just get on the bike and ride the bike bike so why not um, but it's, it's definitely worth the perseverance I think really you need to you probably need a, a coach out there in Portugal um, Elaine just to uh, just to help you along a little bit there but uh, it shouldn't take you too long to, to, to get a, uh, get going on a bike it's you need to come and visit enough. you need to come and uh, visit and coach me Martin <laughs> that's very kind of you I shall uh, ride there because I don't even get a flight or a trip no. or anything like that so I, have to, I shall have to get the bike out and ride down <laughs> okay you mentioned um, you were a tour director so so well, what does that involve well tour director just uh, basically they're called chef de mission it, the universal language of cycling is French, so I apologise if I drop into the odd bit, but chef de mission, the, the, the mission chief, if you like. Um, so 
that was basically uh, organising the tour, you know, getting the hotels sorted out, getting the any training facilities, getting the the meet the matches sorted out, the, the competitions sorted out, and basically acting as a, a conduit for um, at, at the time there was a I think it was an under sixteen team that we took out there to the United States, um, and uh, we, uh, we we centred on Arizona, uh, which is a wonderful part of the world, the Grand Canyon and uh, all around there. Um, uh, the um, uh, the Bell Rock, uh, Sedona, um, Jerome, uh, the the ghost town, the uh, the, the cowboy town, and uh, Monument Valley, all uh, all within sort of uh, driving distance of where we were. So I was more impressed with the scenery than the actual competition, to be honest. But um, but basically, it's just looking after the health and welfare of about uh, I think about fifteen or sixteen kids and uh, a few of the members of the tour party. So you're you're the uh, you know, the backside that gets kicked if it goes wrong. Um, but, but that's basically what the tour director does. Um, so um, uh, it's, it's, it's quite a prestigious job, but it's not the sort of thing that if you want to retire early that you need to be doing now. Um, so um, I'm, I'm glad I did it when I did, uh, when I got the energy and, uh, and the direction to do it. But uh, it's, um, it, it's, it's certainly a, a fulfilling job as well. Um, You've, on your um, on your CV, you have a number of um, caps, as it were. So if you were a footballer, you'd be you'd be capped. So so yeah. tell us about the the um, competitions that you've you've won and, and and things you've done on that side of things. Okay, well, I, I represent. Um, I had one cap for England, one appearance for England, but then uh, at Cycle Speedway. But then um, some of the guys got together, realised that we'd got. Irish heritage over here, so we uh, we actually created the team. So we we you know it was, wasn't started in Ireland; it was started in, in the UK. And um, uh, as as it went on, it was uh, there, there were there's the home international series which was run each year. So it was England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. So it's it's a bit like rugby in that there's no differentiation between uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. It's, it's, it's Ireland is Ireland, and that's it. So we got guys from the north. And guys from the south uh, in, in in the side, um, and uh, the, the, and that was really just to get going in the home international competition. But as, as things went on, then uh, the European and the world uh, stage beckoned. And, uh, you know, I was very privileged and proud to ride in a couple of uh, world finals and a couple of world individual finals as well um, back in 1981, 1991. Um, so it was all part of the emerging international scene at the time. Uh, but um, that immediately ups the ante. You've got to be so, you've got to cover every blade of grass, so to speak. You've got to cover every um, every problem, every issue. You've got to sort out as, as a as a sports person. So the only difference between um, uh, between what I do and what say Chris Hoy would do or Bradley Wiggins would do is that they get paid for it and I don't. But that's deliberate because at the time I, I got quite a good job. I've got a good job now. Um, and um, I wanted the, um, you know, the hustle and bustle of international competition. Uh, but um, if I um, lost my job, I'd also lose, lose my hobby. So uh, I'm, I'm very sort of, um, sort of, uh, as I mentioned at the, at the outset of the, uh, the conversation about being Martin Graham or Martin Gamble, I like being the cyclist and the not cyclist. Um, and the not cyclist or the, the guy who works in IT uh, versus the uh, guy who rides a bike. And um, I'm able to split between the two. 
So, like I say, if I lose my job, I don't lose my hobby. So if I if I had gone professional cyclist, if I lost my job, I've also lost my hobby as well because that's what I like doing. Mm. So, so so it was it was quite a good quite a good arrangement really. Uh, and and there are lots. There probably I'm sure there are far more people who ride at uh, elite levels or compete at elite levels in sport or, or anything else for that matter. Uh, it could be dance, it could be arts, anything. Um, who um, uh, are very good at what they do. Uh, but they, they choose not to make a living at it as such um, because of that that reason, and, and that's 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 why I, you know I was very happy to do that at the time. Okay, so you you became a coach, which is fantastic. And as we know, coaching once you once you know how to coach, you can apply it in lots of different areas of life, can't you? So so what 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 areas have you covered? Because you you mentioned not just cycling. So so how how have you used your coaching? Um, experience and, and qualifications in other areas well the, the coaching there's, there's a lot a lot to coaching there's, there's sort of a there's a man management side of it woman management side of it as well let's not forget um, you, you, you've also got the technical side as well um, and um, it, it, the, the sometimes you'll have a, 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 a session a section of coaches uh, working uh, with one or more uh, athletes um, so you'll have somebody who'll be looking at nutrition, you'll have somebody who'll be looking at uh, fitness, you'll be somebody looking at recovery, somebody looking at stamina, and different coaches sometimes specialise in different, different specialities. Um, and I, I've tended to, I've, I've taken the, um, uh, the level two club coach uh, badge uh, way back in 2000, uh, which enabled me to, to uh, coach across disciplines uh, in British, within British cycling. And um, as such, um, also delivered um, coach to coach sessions as well at the English Institute of Sport and, uh, and various other venues, um, where there's an exchange of ideas. And, and as a coach, you you learn things on a daily basis. If you don't, you're not coaching properly, really. Um, and um, but but again, like I said, there, there are lots of things, lots of coaches who specialise in. Some some will specialise on rollers, for instance, in cycling. Some will specialise on roller racing. Some will specialise on the watt bikes, which are these things that you see advertised with Peloton. Um, I think other um, other static bikes may also be available. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have seen the adverts for that, um, and and these are basically watt bikes. So these are bikes that were used um, in the science lab to actually calculate how much energy cyclists are producing, how much energy, and, and well, and compare that against how much energy a cyclist needs to actually compete at the level that they want to. Um, and and the other thing about coaching is that it 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 it, 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 it can apply to everybody or anybody. You're not necessarily preaching to the converted you, you can work i work a lot with grassroots and it's great seeing kids grow up you know from toddling about to getting on a bike with the old bikeability bikes uh, you know the ones that you want to have pedals so they're just learning balance at the time and then they graduate onto pedals and then they get onto road and then they get onto track and so on and so forth so uh, you know i'll not mention them but there are there are a number of cyclists who um, are emerging at the moment at the elite level um, and uh, representing the country at sort of under 23 level at the moment but uh, uh, you know I'm very pleased to of course I'm not claiming any benefit for it because they've moved on to uh, other coaches since uh, since I work with them but you know they are um, it's, it's very pleasing to see that and I, and I get as much out of that as I, as I did competing myself to be fair I think it's um, you know it's a different career and, and a different set of skills actually being a coach as well because you, you, you talk about things you have to understand things 
rather than just going out and doing it, which is basically what the athlete does. The athlete basically does what they're told or, uh, or what they agree to. Um, and, um, and, and, and that that's 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 another it's another skill altogether being a coach. Yeah. I know you 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 talk about um, in things I've read about you talk about circle of performance. T tell us about that. What is yeah, a circle of performance? Well, the, the, this is I also I did um, a diploma in sports psychology um, to uh, at the same time as I did a coaching uh, badge as well. So I was quite busy for at least a year. Um, and uh, some of that 800 hours worth of work that went into it. It's, it's quite intensive. And what, what, what you try and do is you create an environment. And, and this, this, is, this is the view that, that we put together. You, you, you often see people say, when we start winning things, then we'll start enjoying sports a bit more or enjoying the career a bit more once we start getting results. And, and people start putting carts before horses. Uh, with this thing, confidence, for instance. So people, the, the adage about confidence in football. I use football to know football quite well. Uh, if we start winning games again, we will gain our confidence. is is a normal mantra that's uh, that you hear across the terraces on the TV sets uh, at the weekend. Uh, and and clearly there, the the obvious question there is: Well, if you haven't got the confidence, how are you going to win that first game anyway? Um, so the, the thing that you need to address is the confidence, not the actual winning of the game. Um, so you're dealing with the confidence of the athletes first to make sure that when those athletes cross that white line and start competing, that they are confident. And, and, and basically confidence is essentially, it's a trust in your own ability, really. So, so you have to work with the athletes so that they trust their own abilities. Um, and then they, they can do that on a Saturday afternoon or, or whenever it is that they're actually competing um, and, and compete to the best of their ability. Um, so the circle of performance is based around that. Now, if I start off, uh, I'll, I'll be, um, I'll, paradoxically, you know, paradox is something that seems to be untrue, but it isn't, it's true. Um, paradoxically, the first thing that you need to do on the circle of performance is you need to create an environment where people enjoy what they're doing. Now this is, this applies not just to sport, but I'm sure it applies to careers and um, anything else that you're doing. Um, looking after children, whatever you want to, however you want to do it, you, you can apply this to any walk of life. So if you find an angle to enjoy your work um, and you enjoy it, you create an environment where other people can enjoy it. So I, as a coach, the first thing I do, is create an, an environment where people enjoy it. Starting off with a nice friendly smile, a bit of fun, make sure that the training, the practice that you're doing is fun and people enjoy it. Um, some, some kids are so talented, you can't teach them anything, but you can create an environment that they enjoy working in. So if you've got that enjoyment at the outset and people enjoy it, what happens? Well, they come back for more. Um, they then say, okay, coach, when's the next session? Well, it's next week. Oh, can we have a session on Thursday or Friday? And, and eventually you end up building that demand. If you come back more, you come back for more, you train and you practice better. Uh, and that will include conditioning. If you're talking about sports, if, you, if you're talking about career, that might mean that you, you know, you, 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 the work that you're putting in is, is a little bit more intense, a little bit more relevant to what you're doing and a little bit more uh, directed to what you're doing. 
And if you've done that, then your preparation's better. Now, if your preparation's better, back to what I was saying about confidence earlier, confidence being a trust in your own ability, you can trust your own ability there, so that gives you the confidence. So confidence actually comes quite a way down before uh, you, before you actually um, get involved in, uh, in looking at results. And even after confidence, the next step after confidence, if you're prepared, you're confident, you've done all your training, uh, you've practiced everything, you can analyze, you can say, okay, I've, as I cross this line today to compete as, a, as, a, as, a, as an athlete, have I done everything I needed to do to get to this stage? Have I, have I trained hard? Have I uh, got my conditioning correctly? Have I had proper diet? Um, have I had a good night's sleep? There's that kind of thing. And if the answer to that is all yes, which you would hope it would be, because you won't cross that line otherwise, then you perform, your confidence is good. And if confidence is good, then you perform better. And if you perform better, success. So performance is related to success. It doesn't guarantee success. There are other things, you know, in sport, you get things called referees who have an opinion. <laughs> they, um, um, they, they may have a different opinion to you. But at least you've gone out, you've put, performed to the best of your ability, and the reward for that would be success. And if you've got that success, then you enjoy it. And once you enjoy it, you go around the circle again. So you enjoy doing what you're doing, be it sport or career or whatever, and then you come back for more. When you come back for more, you practice and train better. Then you're prepared better, your confidence comes back, you perform better, and then success again. And then you enjoy it, and then you go around again. So it's a self-fulfilling um, set of uh, routines, really, um, that, uh, that enable you to uh, improve on your performance. Um, and you'd basically join that. If you don't enjoy it, then you, two things happen. One or two things, sorry, one or two things to fix that. Firstly, if you don't enjoy it, don't do it. That's, that's the first thing. Secondly, if you don't enjoy it, and this probably appears more, more to careers and things like that, is you, you need to find an angle in your work that, that you can enjoy it. Um, now, from a career point of view, how many people use PowerPoint? Let me use this as an example, because this is something that I did uh, many years ago. I was down at London Bridge on a course about PowerPoint, how to use PowerPoint. It was a week-long course, believe it or not, on how to use PowerPoint. This was quite a few years ago. Uh, Microsoft PowerPoint is um, it, it, it's, it's basically producing slides so you can actually talk to people and bore them to death, really. It's an aid to boredom. That's PowerPoint. So I went on this course for a full week and it covered everything about, you know, how should you stand, what clothes you should wear, um, what, uh, what intonation you should use in your voices, what you should have on the slides, what you should do this, da 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 and it went on and on and on. And there were so many things to learn by the Friday afternoon. And I just basically stood up, I said, well, I think I've learned how not to do things <laughs> this week. So it's been quite a useful week in that respect. And basically, I just took the whole thing away. And the next presentation, PowerPoint presentation I did was, it was basically an hour of stand-up comedy, I think. It was, it was, it was there. But, but again, if you've got that bit of humour and that, that little bit of spark and things like that in, 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 in how you're talking, how you're presenting stuff, people enjoy it. And if 
the audience is enjoying what you do, then they listen better. And if they listen better, they'll come back for more. And if they come back for more, what you're saying and what you're doing, you get more of that information into their heads. And if you do that, then they're prepared for what it is they're going to do. And if they're prepared for what it is they're going to do, they've got the confidence. And if they've got the confidence, they can then perform better. And, and, and do you see what I mean? It, it sort of it, it, it sort of fits into that sort of walk of life that you've got. So the circle of performance really does apply um, to, uh, to I, I can't think of many co- uh, walks of life that it doesn't apply to really. So if you start off from the key point of enjoying it, and if you don't enjoy it, like I did in my career as well, find an angle in that you can enjoy it. And the angle in I said was, I'm going to rip up that PowerPoint manual and I'm going to do it this way because this is what I'd like to hear. This is If I'm sat in the audience, I don't want somebody who's reading at me and, and, and pointing randomly at very cluttered slides and lots of colours and things. I want to get involved. I want participants participation I want, I want i want people to enjoy doing it um and um and, and and that's that's what i do to this day really um I, you know i, I, I you know i peppered the thing with a few gags and jokes just really things so people can enjoy it and keep the things interactive and that's the way i do it, it doesn't work for everybody but you know people will do it different ways they'll have different ways of doing that um you know they might tell interesting stories or little anecdotes and things that um that pass the time and keep people interested so that the, the whole point of a PowerPoint slide is to disseminate information and give people information and calls to action. Um, and and if, if you're boring people to death after five minutes, you're definitely not going to do that. Exactly. That reminds me of a, a situation when I first did, I've been, I've been doing public speaking and presenting and talking to audiences since 1992. My first gig was at the Connaught Rooms in London, which is a very prestigious place to speak. And I didn't know, didn't know that at the time, um, but I knew it was going to be a big event. And I thought I was just one of the speakers. Well, it turns out I was the keynote speaker and it was my first event, but because nobody knew that, of course, except me. And um, yeah. I, did, I did take tuition behind the scenes and I had a mentor that was helping me because I was nervous and I did a bit of practicing. So I go to the toilet, just you know, last minute nerves, you should do. Bent yeah. down to pull my tights up and my glasses fell off and broke. So I thought, oh dear, bother, as you can imagine. And uh, <laughs> so I went, oh. went out and, uh, and it was in the days, there wasn't, it was pre PowerPoint, no such thing as PowerPoint in those days because the overhead yeah, yeah. acetates yeah. were used. Yeah. And um, I didn't know about, you know, presenters supposed to carry this case around with, with, with his spare parts and, and pens and this, that, and the other. So, um, in about the four, and I had to prepare a written spiel on what I was going to be saying. Well, um, I did, although I found it quite difficult because I, I, I can't keep on script. So um, about the fourth acetate in, the, the darn machine broke and there was no lamp. Even the hotel didn't have a spare lamp. So I just put notes away <laughs> and I just literally spoke from the heart on my topic. I was talking about credit management at the time. And yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I ended up, the glasses wasn't a problem because it meant I, I could only see the first few rows of the audience. So that was good. There was about 200 people there. And um, yeah. then uh, the acetate breaking, the, you know, the, power, the machine breaking wasn't a problem because it, it enabled me to speak from the heart. And I ended up getting a stand innovation in my first gigs. And I've never, I've never prepared anything to this, to this day. And, and it's about being authentic, isn't it? So when you're no, that's, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, you know, we were we were taught 
um, use prompt cards and things like that. I don't use them at all now. Um, and, and the slides I, I put up are still a bit cluttery and they could do with tidying up a little bit, but it's to do with the nature of the business I'm in in IT. So the very, very technical, very, very low level technical um, uh, slides. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's the case of um, uh, you know knowing your audience, um, which again is part of the um, that's part of the knowledge the knowledge build that you need to build up your confidence. If you know who you're speaking to, that's that's I think I'm talking about what is talent a little bit later on, but uh, that's one of the talents that you that you have, and um, uh, it's, it's just working to your audience. But but doing things like that, it's amazing how circumstances dictate how you do things to. Uh, a vast degree these days and, and breaking your glasses and, and the and the and the ohp breaking down the bulb going in the ohp uh, you couldn't think of any worse disasters especially if that's first your first appearance and the first appearance as a keynote speaker mm. but on the other hand if, if you prepared for it then um which you clearly had and, and, you, and you and you then spoke from the heart out of necessity and you got that ability to do that then that's fantastic that's even better than what you'd have actually wanted would have ended up preparing had nothing gone wrong no exactly um, and it, and it's given me a story as well to inspire other people because when people say to me oh you know i couldn't speak in front of an audience and i couldn't do this and i couldn't do that um you know the the the, the inspirational part of it gets other people going well thinking well if you can do it i can do it you know so yeah yeah and, and yeah. the radio we, we, we both have the radio shows and when i first came on the radio you're you're, you're an old timer you've been doing it for many many years i'm i'm still a novice and i'm still learning <laughs> Um, but when I first started, I was told um, uh, by somebody who we both know, oh, you must prepare everything. You need 15 songs per hour. Um, so I'd worked out, I was doing a two-hour show. I needed then I needed 30 songs. So on the Sunday, prior to my first show, I was um, working at all these, you know, downloading these songs and getting ready and getting the spiel in between the songs and everything. I thought, oh, God, this is hard work. I'm not really not sure if I should have put my hands on yeah. it. Yeah. I got persuaded to do it and then um then i realized that i actually my show isn't a music show it's a talk show so i don't need all that many songs no so, no, so, no 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 you know, no you're right i mean i started off i was scared stiff and i had a script i used to write a script every week down to the word and um eventually people said why why you sound like you're reading it from a script and it, well i am actually <laughs> so, <laughs> so, well no don't do that <laughs> So, uh, you know, I might just make a few pencil notes these days when I, when I go in. But again, it's down to the experience of what you're doing and, and the fact that I ain't got a producer. So, yes. and, and I'm sure you haven't got a producer either. I so, don't uh, have, no. no nobody, <laughs> nobody dare produce me. No, I think that would be, that would be a bad idea. Yeah, for all yeah, of us. yeah, yeah. Um, and it's what you say, Martin, about enjoyment. Um, I say that I've never done a day's work in my life because I've always enjoyed what I do. And so every now and yeah. then there are surveys that Gallup and Chambers of Commerce and so on do. And nearly every time it comes out around the same 70 to 75 percent of people in work don't like their job. And therefore, they're not going to be productive and efficient. Like you were saying, this circle of performance. Yeah, that's uh, that, 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 that's true. Um, as you say, you know, if you find a job that you like doing, you never do a day's work in your life. Uh, that's that's absolutely true. And that, that applies. It doesn't matter what that job is. Um, you know, whether you're chairman of BP or whether you're sweeping the roads uh, in, in a city centre, um, if you enjoy doing that, and I know I know of people, who, and I say sweeping the roads because I know of people who've done that and who've thought it's been the best job that the best thing they can do. They love it, and that's great because um, 
when it comes to money, we're all 30 bob short on a Friday afternoon, aren't we? Uh, we're, all, we're all struggling to buy that last round. Um, and um, it, 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 it doesn't matter how much you earn. So, it's still, please don't take a job just purely on money basis. You've got to enjoy the job, what you're doing. And um, if you do that, you're at work eight hours a day or more. Um, you've just got to enjoy doing that. That's the Thanks. first thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Let, let's hear your first song, which um, probably takes no introduction, but I'm, but I'm going to ask you for one. It's Harry Chapin, Circles. Why did you choose this one, Martin? Circle of performance, really. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, I think Harry Chapin's a wonderful songwriter, writes lots of um, uh, songs from the heart um, and uh, anecdotal stuff. And uh, this is, uh, I, th I think, I think I've got this on my funeral list. I think really, but you listen to the lyrics to understand why. Brilliant! Here, here it comes. So, no introduction needed, but uh, very obvious there to do with this circle of performance. Martin, when you're when you're coaching, uh, I'm sure you'd have some. Uh, you're saying grassroots is where you specialise mostly um, with with your coaching days, but. Um, talent not talent i mean what, what do you do with when you have um kids who aren't very, aren't very don't appear to be talented and how do you spot talent where, 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 where's the line here well ta talent to me talent is many things um if you think about it there's there's um if you think about, about the world of say cycling um you've got to be fast you've got to be strong you've got to um uh, recovery you've got to be fit but it goes beyond that because if you're just fit and you're strong and you've got good balance and you can ride a bike fast, that's all well and good. But there's other stuff that goes around that, stuff that might not seem as obvious. So, I mean, if I said to you that being able to sleep well at night is a talent, um, uh, eating the right food is a talent, being able to process that food is a talent, the discipline of getting up at five o'clock in the morning or whatever it is that you need to get up and, and getting out of bed and being prepared is a talent. So suddenly you get into these things, a lot of these things are fairly mundane. So if you say what is talent, you can list, and, and, and I stop at 30 when, I, when, I, when I'm doing my coach, coach to coach sessions, um, is that we go through a list of uh, attributes that contribute towards creating the athlete themselves. And as I say, some of these are quite, uh, take for instance, um, sleeping. The, the British cycling team, uh, the last and previous Olympics, they used to take their own pillow with them um, to the hotels. So they'd sleep on their own pillows. So they've a better chance of getting a good night's sleep. And we've all had those occasions when we've woke up, we feel as though we've been dragged through a hedge backwards all night. Um, and, and you don't feel like doing anything the following day if you've had a bad night's sleep. So having a good night's sleep is indeed in itself a talent. Now you can list all these things out. You can list things out like, uh, okay, that your DNA might be part of it, but you can compensate for that. Um, you, you, your fitness levels, you can compensate for that. You can do something about that. Not, not sleeping very well. You can do something about that. Um, eating the wrong diet. You can do something about that. So you've got all this list of things and then gradually you'll be able to go down every single one of them apart from two, which I'll come to in a little bit. And you can say, well, I can actually improve that. I can actually work on sleeping. I can, I can, um, you know, I can do relaxation exercises before I go to bed. Um, I can do self-talk when I'm in bed to make, me, make myself go to sleep. 
Uh, and there, there are certain things that you can do. Even going to bed with an empty bladder, for instance, is a talent because you're not you're less inclined then to wake up during the night and have to go to the toilet and that breaks your night's sleep. Now, if you go through this list of talents that, that we put down, there's only two that you can't do anything about and that is your age and your height. So no matter how hard you try, you can't adjust your age. In actual fact, your height, some bright spot decided to interrupt me when I was doing one presentation and said, actually, I know a basket player that's had his legs extended through surgery. So, <laughs> so it's okay then, all right. It's just, but you, you can't, the vast majority of things um, are, are to do with talent. Now, the other, on the other aspect of things, let, let's, let's, let's pretend that I'm a football manager and I'm talking to my chairman and I want to sign David Beckham in his prime. So I'm, I'm trying to get the, the chairman to spend £20 million to buy this England captain, world-class player, uh, to put him in the side but the chairman's never seen him play so the chairman will ask the questions what what's he like at throw-ins is he any good at throw-ins well he's okay he's not so bad he's okay what about heading the ball well he's as good as anybody else really he's not brilliant but he's okay what about kicking with his left foot is he any good at that well no he's not very good on his left foot at all really so the chairman then says well wait a minute you want me to spend 20 million pound on somebody who's not very good at throw-ins not very good um heading the ball and he's rubbish on his left foot. What, what, we just described David Beckham. <laughs> so you, you, you can pull out those things. And not only do you have, not have to be good at everything on that, you can improve everything if you want to. And that's the, um, I think it was Roger Bannister who said, fitness is both finite and absolute, uh, an infinite, sorry. Um, so you, you can be fit to do a, a certain job like run a four minute mile. Um, but you can be even fitter still to run faster than four minute mile. Um, so there's that, there's, there's the, you know, like I said, the, the finite side and the infinite side of it. So if you are working with a, an athlete or working with someone at work or, or various other things, you can go through the work, the progress of the work, and you can guarantee that the, most of the stuff you can improve it, but, but maybe you don't need to improve it. Maybe there are, you know, there are other things to concentrate on uh, as to how you're doing it. It could be that if that person at work who's insubordinate and not performing well, it might be that the, the, the sole problem is that they're not sleeping well at night. Uh, and it's a completely different issue to solve somebody who's sleeping well at night to somebody who's not performing at work. Um, so that's the management and the coaching side, how that comes into it, is actually stripping away what constitutes that person that you're coaching um, and, and, and looking and, and working, working down each particular facet, each aspect of talent that you've got uh, and seeing if you can improve it and where you can improve it, um, apart from your age and your height, of course. What about goal setting? Do you, do you find that um, people say, oh, my, um, my aim is to do my personal best of, you know, X and Y or whatever it is. Um, do you find that some people are over... Uh, you know sort of unrealistic about goal setting H how do you how do you support people in that aspect yeah i mean goal, goal setting is not to be confused with expectation goal setting is is when you're working with an athlete you decide okay this time next year they want to be world champion or, or whatever it happens to be something that's realistic something that's achievable i mean clearly nobody was ever in the like, like yourself elaine 
it'd be pointless me saying to you, I can make you world champion this time next week because that would be unrealistic just as it'd be unrealistic for me to be world champion ever again <laughs> so <laughs> not that I've ever been a world champion but but um uh, so your goal setting has to be realistic but also the other on the other hand people set expectations and this is great for D David and Goliath situations for expectations so if I set an expectation that I expect my team to go out uh, this weekend and win handsomely because we're playing a team that's from three or four leagues below us. Um, what sometimes happens, I mean, sometimes that does happen, that they'll, they'll win four or five nil or whatever. Uh, but, the, but giant killing, for instance, it's, as they call it in, in, in football parlance and, and sporting parlance, is the, the, the better team will go out and expect to win. And, and what happens is after five minutes, 10 minutes, 15, 20 minutes, the score's still nil-nil. So two things happen. One is that the team, if it's by half time and it's still nil-nil, the team that should be winning, who expects to win, start questioning what they're doing and say, well, we, we, we should be two, three nil up by now, but, but we're not. Uh, and eventually the, the, the laws of physics collapse around them because they start thinking, well, we're not doing anything. What, how can we possibly not be winning here? And there's a disorientation in, in that aspect. And the second thing that happens is the team that should be losing handsomely start thinking, wait a minute, it's still nil-nil here. We, we, you know, we're still, we can go out in the second half and we can really give it a go. So, and, and quite often what happens is the team that should be winning ends up losing uh, through a giant killing aspect. And they, they have no idea why they've lost. They can't, they, they just talk, haven't any idea. Because of this setting the expectation, I think the only thing rather than setting expectation is, is is the preparation to perform well. If you prepare to perform well, which we covered earlier, um, then you can do that. Now that doesn't interfere with setting a goal to success. Because if you want to win the FA Cup and you you're Blackwell United or whatever, you want to win the FA Cup, then that's your goal. It's probably unrealistic to be fair, but nevertheless that might be your goal. Uh, it's probably unachievable, but nevertheless, that's the, that's the goal. Um, but then you'd go out, if they expect to win every game, clearly that's not going to happen. So, if you define your goal and be clear, concise and realistic, that's the key thing. And a lot of the time, if you write these things down, if you write it down, it happens. Um, so, and then you're asking yourself the question, what do I need to do in order to achieve? whatever it is that my goal is. Um, quite often you end up with belief systems. That there's something in, in your head called the uh, reticular activity system. It's a, it's a little part of the brain at the top of the, uh, top of the spine, base of the skull. It's only a small piece of the brain. But, but that, 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 that filters out a lot, of the, um, a lot of the stuff. It acts as a gatekeeper. So, for instance, if you're in a crowded room and somebody shouts Elaine, you can hear that, but you can't hear everybody else talking around it. It's just, you, you, you're programmed to hear that. And, and this, is this, this is what you're trying to train um, in terms of um, your belief system. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to, you're trying to do away with those beliefs that you, quite often you're taught as a kid. What is it? Something like 16,000 times by the time you're five, you're taught no. No, 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 don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And on 
a few dozen occasions literally so yes do that yes do that do that do the other so that relates back onto the it's much easier to do stuff than it is not to do stuff so you're training the uh, the particular activity system activating system to to actually um you know to actually allow you to do that so it's much better to be positive about something than be negative about nothing if you see what i mean um, yes. it's a lot, yeah. lot, lot easier to do that yeah. so it also helps to i mean we haven't got time to go into defining uh benefit uh, beliefs and defining systems and, and overcoming barriers uh, which which that's essentially what the job of the coach is um but if you set realistic beliefs uh, realistic yeah. targets um and you understand what the limits are to your belief system you can then start training your reticular action system something called neuro-linguistic programming which i'm sure you've you've had plenty of people speaking about that who yes. are probably far better at it than i am um but you use that kind of use it's kind of a logical um uh, rational analysis uh, to get what's called a well-formed outcome um which actually overcomes those barriers to to um to that so when you tie that back in with the talent and the circle of performance and, and various other things you can see in a nutshell I mean, bear in mind, it took 800 hours for me to get to this level. I'm trying to do it in 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> it's, it, 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 suddenly, it opens up a new approach to, uh, to things. And I say, it does, does not just apply to sport, but it also applies to any walk of life, anything you want to do. If you want to apply it to your career, that's great. Or, you know, even looking after the grandkids or something like that, that's, that's you know, you can do that. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Martin. It's been a real pleasure having a, a chat with you. And um, uh, your station, your your, your programme on uh, Elastic FM. Uh, let's uh, tell listeners about that. Yes, I'm the um, I'm the hairy the hairy one on Sunday evenings. So it's the Sunday night rockery. Um, so a, a rock a rockery is a heaped arrangement of rock. So I thought well, that sounds a, a pretty apt description of the programme. So I'm on 9 till 11 on um, Elastic FM and uh, the first hour is sort of fairly loud, sort of heavy metal stuff. But then the second hour is more uh, adult oriented rock and more soft rock, folk rock, that kind of thing. So generally speaking, you know, hopefully you go to bed in a good frame of mind, not bouncing off the ceiling. So 9 till 11, Sunday nights, Elastic FM, Sunday night rockery. Thank you. Brilliant. Marvellous. We'll all be listening to that. And uh, we're going to be playing out on your, your second song, the lads, in the, the lads in Their Hundreds by George Butterworth. I've not heard of that. Well, I don't think I have. Uh, it doesn't give yeah. any bells. What is that about, Martin? It's, 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 it's actually written before the First World War. It was written, it, it's a poem by a houseman called, uh, it's a circle of poems, a cycle of poems called The Shropshire Lad. And um, the poems were set to music by uh, George Butterworth, who was... Um, uh, it, it was a lot of the musicians at the time, the Romantic period, English Romantic period. They were um, uh, they, they were going around collecting folk music and things like that. There was a, a huge influx in traditional music and, and, and putting it to uh, with the classical background and stuff. And and the the, the lads in the hundreds was used um, on the hundredth uh, anniversary of the Battle of the Somme in in uh, twenty sixteen. Uh, and it's particularly poignant because George Butterworth, the author. Uh, the, or the composer, should I say, um, was was killed at, at the Battle of the Somme, uh, and I found out later in life that my granddad, my great granddad, was also killed on the first day of the Battle of the Somme in uh, 1916, first of July 1916. So this particular song, it's it's about um, 
you know, all, all the girls and boys going to the fair and having a bit of a laugh and a joke and getting a few beers down them and so on. And then looking around and seeing that some of them ain't going to come back. But it was written before the First World War. It's probably referring to the Crimean War or something like that. But it, 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 it's, it's absolutely poignant for the First World War and for the 100th anniversary of the Battle of the Somme. And as I say, because Great Granddad was killed at the Battle of the Somme. So um, it, it's, it's a song. It's Mark Stone, Barry Tone, Stephen Barlow on piano. And it's called The Lads in Their Hundreds. Marvellous. Thank you, Martin Gamble. And don't forget, listeners, to tune in to Sunday Night Rockery, 9 till 11 on Elastic FM. And uh, this show will be repeated on Saturday, 11 till 12. And I'll be online next Tuesday with another wonderful guest. So whatever you're doing, have a fantastic week. Keep safe, keep healthy. And uh, here is The Lads in Their Hundreds by George Bosterworth. Thank you, Martin Gamble. Thank you, Elaine. Enjoyed it. Thank you. It's been brilliant.